How are we doing, guys? Welcome back to the Muscle Mentors Podcast. We've got guest interview number eight. Am I right? Yes. Yeah, I believe so. Um, and we have the man, uh, Jacques Taylor, back. Um, a popular demand, actually, because his episode was pretty damn well received. And um, so Jacques, obviously, we'll, we'll let him reintroduce himself for those that haven't heard, but he's, you know, he's a pretty amazing uh, mind in, in the field of exercise science and, and neuroscience and the neuromuscular system and everything like that um and we're gonna we're gonna kind of delve into some cool stuff today with regards to the neuromuscular system and motor unit recruitment and stuff but um but Jacques how are we doing oh doing just great it's great to be back uh thank you for having me back pleasure 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 is ours yeah what's um what's been happening on your end well, uh, as you know, it's it's very very cold where I live right now. Uh, we're suffering mightily in the late. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, what have I been up to? Um, getting ready for uh, this course that I'm going to be hosting over um, in London, and we're going to be talking about strength and how the neuromuscular system influences strength. Um, and how to measure strength, uh, what is strength, all those kind of things, and how can we maximize our um, our programs that are designed to increase strength. Mm. Unbelievable. Yeah, there's actually one other thing in there too, um, and that is um, trying to understand what it means when somebody actually loses strength. What does that mean? What is that an indication of, right? Are we talking about loss of strength over a minute, an hour? two days, three years, what are all those things going to do? So um, it really is going to be taking a, a, a pretty in-depth look at strength, what it means, how to measure it, how to improve it, how to maintain it, and what it means when you lose it. Mm. Mm. So for, for all the people that want to call themselves exercise professionals, this is a, this is a key, key seminar for you guys to be on. Um, okay. there's only, yeah, and there's only like... I believe four spaces left. So guys, get it, get on it. Anyone who's London based and who hasn't booked onto that, jeez, get on it. Um, anyway, the I thought we'd basically start by kind of running through some of the stuff we we kind of left hanging a little bit last time, and um, because obviously we covered a lot with Jacques last time. So for those that didn't listen to that episode, I'd go back and do that. Um, but one of the uh, things I think would be really valuable would just be to run through the motor unit, like what what it is, um, how it actually works. So, uh, I mean, let, let's literally keep the the question that vague to begin with. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Um, so, um, let's think of uh, uh, a muscle. You gotta take a bicep. And that bicep is going to be made up of uh, several different muscle fibers. And each one of those muscle fibers, also known as a muscle cell, has to have some type of innervation from the nervous system, okay? And each one of those fibers is innervated by um, an axon from an alpha motor neuron, which sits in the spinal cord. So you got the cell that sits in the spinal cord, it sends out this this wire uh, that we call an axon goes out into the periphery to that bicep muscle 
and it branches out and it innervates several muscle cells. Okay. Now that alpha motor neuron and all of the muscle cells that it innervates, that is one muscle, one motor unit. Okay. So for every muscle, you're going to have several motor units. You could have a hundred up to several hundred, um, maybe even a thousand motor units in a muscle. These motor units also vary in size. So you have small alpha motor neurons that might be in charge of a small number of um, muscle fibers, and these fibers will also be small. And then you can have much larger alpha motor neurons, which are gonna be in charge of more muscle cells. And those muscle cells happen to be a bit bigger too. Okay. okay. So these motor units, you can think of them as the basic functional unit of the neuromuscular system. Fantastic. And I, th I mean, this kind of paints a pretty clear picture, which I, I say clear picture because people won't have considered it. But when, when we're considering how can we recruit muscles, like what's at the top of that chain? Some people go, you know, they don't realize that what they're dealing with is the nervous system. And That's right. That's right. That sits at the top, and you know they're not doing many things to nurture their nervous system, but they're also not accounting for the things that can affect that. Um, you know, even from things like you know poor nutrition, but even poor night sleep, and the effect that that's going to have. And you know, we already can see that if you you know your ability to send signals to your nervous system is compromised, you're not going to be able to recruit tissue in an effective manner. Um, yes. Yes. So, yes, you're absolutely right. Rarely do we think about, um, typically when we're designing exercises, we are thinking about um, muscles. We might even think about the joints that are involved. We might think about uh, the connective tissue, um, whether it's um, joint capsules or ligaments or fascia or what have you. Rarely do we think about the nervous system. And it's the thing that's orchestrating the participation of those motor units to give you the contractions that you need as you exercise. Mm. So the more we can understand about how your nervous system decides, I'm going to use more anterior deltoid than upper pec, the more we understand that process, the better we'll be able to design exercises that will strategically target specific tissues. Mm. Right? Mm. So, so how would you you personally measure this in a in a training scenario? Because obviously you've got access to things that some of us don't. But yes, what, let's assume everyone does. But like, what what are the sort of things you would utilize? Yeah, well, well, there's two things here. Luke is one. Um, the things that I can demonstrate and show people, you can then go and do on your own even though you don't have this equipment that I have. And the equipment that we're talking about is called um, wireless surface electromyography. Mm. The idea is, let's take, for example, a uh, knee extension, right? Uh, you know, a seated knee extension. And you could put a probe on the vastus medialis, rectus femoris, and vastus lateralis. Mm. And what you'll find is, as you start with those knee extensions, you might find, let's say, the vastus medialis and the vastus lateralis are working really hard at the very beginning. 
And as they start to fatigue, the rectus femoral starts to participate a little bit more, right? Mm. So what you're starting to see is you're, if you're saying to yourself, wait a minute, my target that whole time was really the vastus medialis. Well, it was playing the game the whole time, right? Your target was the rectus femoris. You actually had to fatigue the vastus medialis and the vastus lateralis before it actually started to jump in there. Mm. So based on that information, depending on what you're trying to do, whether it's, it might be hypertrophy or it might be more hip and uh, knee joint control, which would mean you're trying to target that rectus femoris, mm. now you get to strategically design your what we call pre-fatiguing exercises. Mm. And that's all based on the way the nervous system recruits these muscles as you fatigue. It's mm. mm. fascinating. So, let, I mean, let's jump into that because that, that brings up an interesting point, like the impact that fatigue can have across, you know, on the process of motor unit recruitment as well as, as, well as things like rep speed because there's this you know, interesting hypothesis that you know, some argue that as we fatigue, we're, we're able to tap into higher threshold motor units. Um, well, some argue that if that is the case, that we would actually be getting stronger as these sets went on and you know i believe that's false and i know you do too so we've spoken about this but um you know that the, there was a i think a guy on a po- quite a big podcast recently speaking about this and um you know he was saying it very assuredly, you know, assuredly that if you know if motor unit recruitment does follow this pattern that as as we fatigue we get into these high threshold guys we should be getting stronger therefore we can't be recruiting higher threshold motor <laughs> Wow, <laughs> and, um, and, uh, and but I mean, can you explain why that isn't the case, and that why you know moving slowly um, in you know let's say we want to do a particular movement with a lot of control and move with a lot of con- you know thought and, and less speed throughout the concentric and eccentric, what how we can still get into those high threshold guys, and how that process that hypothesis is kind of false. Yes. Okay. So there. Uh- a couple of things, um, and I, I'm not trying to plug this class, but this is literally the kind of thing that we are going to be able to observe. We're going to have the technology to observe the recruitment of these high threshold motor units. Okay, so here's the thing you could take a load that you could say, let's say that there is a load that you would typically fail doing bicep curls after eight reps. Okay. As you're doing eight reps, your neuromuscular system starts off recruiting just enough motor units to move that dumbbell. And as you start to fatigue, it actually adds more motor units so you can keep moving that dumbbell. Once it's recruited all the motor units that you have available to you on that given day, in that moment, based on your training, once they once you've got everybody playing the game, once they fatigue that's when you fail, right? Okay. The other thing you could do is you could take, uh, let's say a third of that load and you can start to do a set now where obviously you're gonna be able to do more reps, but if you do that long enough, you do the same thing. You will recruit the small motor units, you add the medium sized guys and the big guys, then everything that you have available on that day, based on your training, will be playing the game and trying to help you do that bicep curl, even though the load is lighter, okay? So the way our neuromuscular system is set up, it's set up to allow you to do things 
for as long as possible. Whether that's a heavy load or a light load, it is trying to allow you to do that as long as possible. So the notion that we cannot recruit these high threshold motor units or that, um, uh, that, that, that that is not true because as we exercise, we're not getting stronger, we're getting weaker. Well, there are two mis, uh, assumptions that are incorrect. If you go from rest to doing a workout, you will indeed get stronger to a certain point. And then you will start to fatigue and you'll start to get weaker again. Okay. Um, we've talked about this a little bit, this idea of potentiation. Yeah. Okay. After you have potentiated, you are as strong as you're going to be on that day. The only thing that can come after that is going to be fatigue, right? And after fatigue comes failure. And that's often the goal of our workouts. Especially if we want hypertrophy or if we want certain types of strength. Okay. So, the, 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 there's one other thing that I think might be um, a misunderstanding out there, and that is um, if you were to take a deconditioned individual and ask them to give you their maximum effort on any given exercise, they will not be able to recruit all of the motor units that are available to them. Mm. They simply don't have the skill. They don't have the point of the, the frame of reference for it, right? Mm -hmm. It actually takes training in order to push your body and to coordinate those motor units to the point where you can recruit everything that you've got. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, if you have somebody um, who is who is doing a study in a university, and they happen to collect, I don't know, 20, 50 people who don't exercise and they make their assumptions about motor unit recruitment based on individuals who don't exercise, then you're going to have a very mis very um, misleading conclusion based mm. on the data that we have. Yeah. 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 That, I mean, that leads me on to my, the, the question of how, how, how this whole process can differ and vary between individuals according to their training age. So like what, you know, you've, you've just discussed, you know, deconditioned individual, they're not yes. able to tap into those higher threshold guys off the gate. Um, That's right. Then what happens when we have someone who is who is conditioned? Like, what what does that going to look like? What's that look like? Okay, so let's think of it like this: When you have an individual who is uh, who is conditioned, they work out regularly. What they're able to do is they were able to recruit a larger range of motor units right beginning from the first rep. Okay. Um, and this is essentially just, you know, their, their neuromuscular system is just more efficient. So their, their body's like, sweet. Am I, am I right in thinking that? They're, they're, no, you are absolutely right in thinking that. Think of it like this. If you were um, laying down on a bed of nails, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like a bed of yeah. nails? Okay. Yeah. That would not be very impressive because you have a lot of force distributed over yeah. a large area. Okay. But if you could lay down on two nails, oh, guys, I'm really sorry about the lawn noise. It's like the. I, was, gonna, I, thought, it was, like, I thought it was an aeroplane doing like a turnaround. <laughs> yeah. Just give me, let me just look. That's All right. Is this. All right. So 
Um, here, here's the thing. When people are looking at um, reducing stress, right? That's just force per unit area, okay? So bed of nails, that's not very impressive. But if you were to lay down on two nails, that would be impressive, right? Because there's a lot more force per unit area, okay? So let's think about the person who is deconditioned. When, when their nervous system recruits the motor units in a muscle, they're just gonna recruit a very few small number of motor units at first, okay? Whereas a person who is conditioned, they're going to recruit a wider range of motor units right off the bat to decrease the amount of mechanical stress on that muscle. Mm. And that is in part how someone gets one, number one, stronger, ah, there's that word, strength, and number two, how they can do things for longer periods of time, and number three, how they can push their body long enough to even stimulate a hypertrophy of it. That makes me makes me think as well. So, I mean, the implications of this with regards to how training works with individuals, depending on their their or how their response to training works, I suppose, depending on their training age. Because at, at face value, it seems that those who are newer to training are not going to need the same level of stimulus to recruit the equivalent amount of tissue. And and in such cases, would you argue that? these individuals wouldn't require the you know training to failure if the sense of like when we're looking at there's less muscle involved so the stress on those fibers is probably going to be greater therefore the rate of adaptation will be faster um uh that one uh, that, yeah yeah no that that's going to be a little bit tricky um so let's let's take it one piece at a time so first the person who's the rookie yeah. they're going to be able they're going to right off the gate be less efficient yeah they're going to more stress on the tissue, they, they may not be able to, let's say that they've got, you know, and this is an exaggeration, but let's say they've got 10 motor units that we know are in there. Mm. They may only have access to six of them, no matter how hard they push, that's it, right? Mm. So that means that whatever effect that you have, there's more stress on that tissue, which means that might, they might need a little bit more recovery time. They won't be able to do as much. In terms of the training effect, meaning will they get more hypertrophy I'm not sure because here's the problem. We know that hypertrophy has to do with making sure that we get maximal energy usage out of that tissue. Mm. They may not be able to do that load long enough to get there. Mm. <laughs> right? Is that if we, so that's if we're considering obviously, you know, the, the metabolic stress component, but if we're looking at the, you know, if we can produce the most amount of mechanical tension, the, the fact that they would have fewer motor units and therefore fewer muscle fibers working would mean yes. that the stress from a mechanical perspective on those fibers yes. would be greater. Could you Absolutely. Say? Absolutely. Yeah. Which would mean that the adaptation could go in a metabolic direction or it could go just in a change of phenotype direction, right? Yeah. Or it could go in a, this was so much stress on this tissue that we actually have some physical repair that has to be done then take them longer to recover mm. right mm. so we've got all these things so what i'm thinking if i've got the rookie and this is this lands right in your lap if i've got the rookie person right and this person goes look i want to get after it let's go mm. i haven't worked out before but i, I want to be in great shape i want to feel good let's get after it that person is going to need some nutritional support mm. to assist in not only the uh um the being prepared to work out, but more on the recovery side in terms of making sure that their connective tissues can 
repair fast enough to keep up and be ready for the next stimulation. Mm. Mm. That's going to be a big deal for that rookie. Yeah, and I think this is where it's interesting because there's a lot of a lot of approaches coming through. I mean, there's obviously a lot of approaches to the whole hypertrophy strength gaining approach, you know, game. Um, but the you know, there's a big prevalence of high frequency, high intensity training to failure, and there's a lot of people that may be coming into training at a relatively young training age and jumping into an approach that is demanding too much of them from both both a neuromuscular and a recovery perspective. Yes, the, the rate at which they can synthesize yeah. the tissue. Um, so I think that that's that's pretty interesting because um, there's you know I I would argue that I don't know Callum we, we've we've spoken about this in our seminars but you know the the new, the people that are newer to training are probably the guys that you don't need to worry about tra- taking to failure just yet <laughs> because they they there's too much you know the effect or the response they're going to get from just fatiguing their their muscles to a decent degree is going to be enough yes yes let me ask you what do you think would be the uh could be the long-term effects of somebody who is training way too hard for their training age what do you think what do you what, what could go what could possibly go wrong with that well, I think it's a lot. <laughs> I think I think the, the likelihood of causing structural damage to joints and connective tissue is pretty high. I'd be looking yeah. at, um, you know, the, the actual fatigue they're going to build up throughout their nervous system and the effect that that will have on other areas of, of their life as well, such as, like, you start seeing people in their sleep goes to absolute pot and they don't really know why, and it's because they're pushing themselves too hard. I think you'd look yeah. at ingestion. I mean, the, the, the effect that you could, you know, people's, often see issues with their digestion because they're they're destroying their nervous system from their training side and that's having a carryover effect into their enteric nervous system and everything like that. Um, And then at the end of the day, they quit, right? Yeah. They quit. And then 15 years later, they show back up at the gym going, "Um, look, I got to do something about this. Mm. Right? But it's 15 years later. Mm. And you know what happens over 15 years. You get you put on a few kilos and, you know, get a little soft and, you know, it's a mess. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. So, so, let's, so let's look at it from the guys that have been in the game for longer and okay. this more, you know, efficient neuromuscular system. Yes. Would, would these be the guys where training to failure is, is something they want to consider utilizing more, but also something they actually actually may need to utilize more if they're looking to continue to adapt. Okay, so let's uh, to continue to adapt, meaning continue to get bigger? And stronger. Well, there's a little bit of a trade-off there. I mean, I mean yeah, like the, the two obviously aren't one and the same, but the... Yeah. Yeah. So, so this is the point where we have to make it, we have to make a bit of a decision. We have to go, okay, is it the strong thing that I'm going after or is it the bigger thing that I'm going after? Because at this point, there will be scenarios where um, you, 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 you won't have both. You will get bigger, potentially, more mass, but I don't think that – I wouldn't put any bodybuilder up against the strong men mm. in a way. Mm. Really, you really think that uh, Kai Green could keep up with uh, Thor, whatever, 
the strongest man contest. Right. Like, like, there's no way, dude. There's only one way to find out, Jacques. <laughs> Let's organize it. Let's so organize. It. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah. So failure becomes um, a very huh, an easy tool to use because it's um, it's not ambiguous. You can't do anymore, right? You're trying and you can't do anymore. So then you have to decide decide whether you want to go through eccentric failure or concentric failure, right? Um, or even an isomet a point where you can no longer do an isometric. It's all versions of failure, right? But you can do it, do any of those. Right. In terms of um, uh, continuing to to adapt uh, for hypertrophy, it's really about that metabolic stress, mm. right? For strength, it's actually about not completely draining that metabolic stress, but allowing a little bit more what we call intercession recovery mm. so that you can go after it again, right? Mm. So for the hypertrophy person, I'm gonna potentiate as soon as I can and get them right into fatigue as soon as I can, right? Whereas with the strength person, I'm going to potentiate them and try to keep them potentiated as long as I can, mm. right? Because the whole purpose is to show them how much they can lift Mm. Are you with me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas with the hypertrophy person, it's not how much you can lift. That's mm. not the goal. Mm. It's use this stuff until it can't be used anymore. Mm. And then eat and sleep and be merry. And repeat. Yes, and repeat. Yeah. The um so so would you say then the the you know the bodybuilders that are, are, are taking the approach of because I know we do like I'll, I'll say I, I follow the approach of I go into sessions with certain movements that I'm not worried too much about accumulating a lot of metabolic stress I'm more concerned with I want to progress what I did last time but I'm I'm focusing on I want to move this weight using my muscles and you know yeah. maximize the amount of tension I'm producing but I'm still chasing an increase in strength um, as, as the, the progressive variable there. Would you, would you say that that's like almost selling yourself short or in terms of performance in the long run? Uh, well, there's a, I'll, I'll say, I'll say no. The reason why I say no is because we all need uh, what I'll call active breaks, yeah. right? Where you are still going into the gym you are still telling your neuro neuromuscular system, we need this tissue. It's here for a reason. Keep it, right? So one way of doing that is by doing little things to change our um, change the goal. It helps with our mental preparation. It also helps a bit with the physical recovery. Yeah. Okay. So I think that having that built in to the overall periodized uh, strategy for a bodybuilder, I think it's genius. I think it's a great idea. But at some point, you kind of got to go, okay, wait a minute. So I just, you know, squatted whatever, one rep. Okay, beautiful. But is that enough really to get that metabolic stress? Mm. Nope. But at some point, I'm going to stop doing my sets where I'm pyramiding up to one rep. I'm going to start doing sets where I'm doing closer to 25 reps. And on the 20th rep, I just cannot stand up. I'm racking that bar with my, you know, butt, you know, a foot from the ground. Mm. And that, I mean, to be fair, that's that's more a case of what, what I'm talking about. So it's a case of, you know, progressively overloading, uh, you know, wet, uh, 
weights in a, in a higher rep range, but I'm still training to failure from a mechanics yeah. perspective before yeah. reaching the metabolic stage. Um, so it'd be like, you know, like eight reps or something. So you wouldn't necessarily accumulate the same degree of metabolic fatigue, but you're just taxing yourself. I mean, to, to quite a heavy degree, taxing yourself neurally as well as, well yeah. as um, mechanically. But so, so, are, so in other words, you are going to failure in eight reps and yeah. you're trying to look at that, look at the, the um, what is the, uh, what, are, what is the stimulation for adaptation of failing at eight versus failing at 25? Yeah. Like is it is eight? Would you would you argue that because you're not accumulating the same degree of of metabolic stress that you're you're potentially missing out to some degree and, and maybe hindering performance because of the recovery demand that that's going to place on your nervous system? Um, the way I would frame that is that is a fair um, I'll call it departure from your normal training schedule. I'd say that's totally fine. It's completely acceptable because you will be allowing other systems to recover while you're taxing that particular um, end of your range. Mm. But as you're deciding, okay, I'm, I'm over this. It's time to you know, put on some mass again. I'm going to say, especially for lower body stuff, if we're talking about you know, squats, and I'm going to say push that back towards the 20 rep range and failing at 20. But how many people... I mean, it, it that is a really difficult thing to do to fail after twenty reps. Oh yeah, and that's right. this really, after eight reps, man. Okay, like like we can stay in the game there, but yeah. if you're pushing and failing on the twentieth rep, man, that is. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's where you. I mean, you said earlier that uh, failure is a, is an easy variable to implement because it's you know it's not ambiguous. It's it's clear cut. You fail when you fail. The yep. problem, the problem, I think. We, both Cam and I would say, and I'm sure you would say as well, is people getting there isn't that's right. Is not a common right. occurrence, and and people go, oh yeah, I'm trained to failure, and then you see a video and you're like, no, 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 and I was, nope. So so you know that's the other thing that we're going to mess around with um, uh, is looking at what makes people think that rep was failure. Yeah. What makes you think that's the last rep you can do, mm. right? And then when you give people that kind of uh, permission to explore that, you'll see them dig in a bit more, or they'll give you the they'll give you the reason why they didn't go for that last rep, mm. like on a leg press, free weight leg press, right? Yeah, you're like you're you're worried that wait a minute, I can't lift this thing up, and there's no stops that are low enough to catch the load. I'm screwed. So there's no way I'm going to go for that quote last rep, right? Yeah. Unless you got two guys on the other side that are willing to to spot you, but who has that these days? You know. So it's it's important to look at the different circumstances why people sometimes won't go to failure. Um, both their, both the, we'll call it the, their ability to feel safe, um, the fear that they might have, or the discomfort that they have. Is it, is it muscular or is it joint? Right. Yeah. It's going to be really important things. Yeah. Oh, and then, and then, and then, oh, this is, I'm sorry, I'm jumping over all over the place a little bit, but I think this will be really cool is we're going to look at a, a, again, at a knee extension and we're going to look at the difference between doing a knee extension where you are, uh, let's say you're 
the your your maximum weight that you could do one rep is I don't know. Uh, what would be like 100 kilos. <laughs> Decent, right? <laughs> so you're doing that knee extension, 100 kilos. We want to see what the neuromuscular activity is like, you know, with that. Then what we're going to do is we're going to measure that neuromuscular activity. So you're going to have a reference point. Then what we're going to do is we're going to put that back down on, let's say, 50 kilos. And I'm going to have you push on that bar again, but this time I'm going to make you contract your hamstrings so you're generating internal tension, right? Internal resistance for those quads. And we're going to look at the neuromuscular feedback and I'm going to ask you to keep squeezing harder and harder until you match that same level that you use when you're doing 100 kilos, mm. right? Mm. And then we're going to talk about the difference between that, what's happening at that knee joint that's different when you have a co-contraction versus just the external resistance. Mm -hmm. And the massive difference is you have an internal regulator of shear at the knee. You got those hamstrings doing a good job of holding that knee like this and not allowing this to happen, which that's exactly what would happen, right? You would have that anterior translation of the tibia if you had a crappy ACL and you were just doing that you know, the, 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 the hundred kilos. Mm. And that would, you know, when people do these leg extensions, like, Oh, I'm getting knee pain. That's right. Give them a co-contraction. And mm. if they're appropriately coached, they can actually get the same neuromuscular recruitment mm. using the co-contraction as when they had that, that's that big load out there. Now that's going to take some training, but we're going to check it out. I'll just, I'll just come up with a question for that, but I'll save it for the seminar. <laughs> All right. All right. <laughs> Otherwise, this would divulge into a, a, a leg extension podcast. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. No, no, that, that's cool. I'll save it. Um, but yeah, um, so, I mean, you mentioned earlier about the, you know, different phenotypes of muscle and, and how that can impact it. So, so yeah, I mean, yeah, that's a big one. <laughs> Yes, it is. Yes, it is. What? Because what, what this is like quite a big topic, but also quite a, a kind of bastardized one. People don't really get um, yes how, how this stuff works and how this how it can actually change. Um, yes. So I mean, can you can you kind of give us a bit of an overview of, of muscle fiber type and and how that can shift and how that works into this whole motor unit debate? Sure. Sure. Uh, so. <clears throat> As you mentioned, there are, uh, when we think of uh, muscle fibers, we think of these fiber types, right? And um, when we're thinking of these fiber types, um, where we, the, the spectrum in our head goes from what, type one up to type two, and there are these different um, letters that we can attach to the type one or the type two, okay? And the type, the, the, the numbers refer to the amount of force that they can generate out that they can generate or the contractile velocity. The type one fibers generally do not generate as much force as the type two fibers. Okay. Now type one and type two are also descriptions of what we call the phenotype of the muscle cell. Okay. And the phenotype just means the part of the genetic code that is currently being expressed. Okay. Yeah. Now, depending on how far that muscle cell is into the type one range, 
as you train that type one tissue, it can it can become a little bit more like type two. Mm. And the same thing with type two tissues. Depending on how where they are in that range of being type two, they can slide over and become more like type one. And those are what we call changes in phenotype, changes in the parts of the DNA that are being expressed in those muscles. And that's all done as a result of training. Mm. Okay? So before you get hypertrophy, right, before you actually get more myofibers being built, excuse me, more myofibrils being built, you will first have changes in phenotype. Mm. Okay? It's a really important thing. So as you have these changes in phenotype, in other words, the amount of force that these tissues can generate, then you also are going to have your, neuro, your neuromuscular system go, oh, wait a minute. This muscle cell that I control actually generates more force than it did last week because it had a change in phenotype, so I don't have to stimulate it as often. Well, that's great. Mm. Which means that now I can use a little bit of that one over there, a little bit of this one over here, a little bit of that motor unit over there. Mm. I don't have to rely on two dinky motor units like I did at the very beginning. Mm. I get to spread it out a bit. Mm. It makes me think as well, I mean, because there's a lot of people that target specific muscle, like muscle groups on the assumption that they're predominantly type one or predominantly type two but, but like based on what we've just discussed i mean surely that is you you're never going to be able to pinpoint that with a with an accurate percentage because it's going to shift around well uh y yes they do shift but you, you won't get oh, here's a here's a, a better way of thinking about thinking about it um so i'm looking at you i'm thinking to myself well huh let's see if i work with luke long enough hmm I think maybe, yeah, maybe he could be a, uh, yeah, you could be a gymnast, sure, 100%. I don't think so, right? You just, that's just not in the packaging, right? It's not going to happen. That's okay? a challenge. <clears throat> Beyond a challenge. I mean, we have to do some sawing here, a little amputation there, cut down your femurs a little bit, you know. Yeah, probably my tibia is more than anything. So, so part of the, 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 the ability to move back and forth in terms of the changes in phenotypes, it really depends on what you're born with. Yeah. So one person may have a higher ratio of fast switch or more slow switch in one muscle group. Another person might be slightly different. But as you train them, you will see where they, which way they tend to go. Mm. And that, that will largely influence the rate of adaptation from both the strength and a hypertrophy standpoint am i right that will be part of it yes that would be one of the things that you could see you could also you could also say okay well, we're going to take this guy we're going to take twins one twin we're going to put oh triplets we put one of the triplets on a on a strength training track where they're just trying to get stronger the second triplet goes on a hypertrophy track the third uh triplet goes on a endurance track they're training for a marathon right and we would see maybe which one of those triplets actually excels the fastest in the thing that, that they're training for. Mm. We might find that there's just one of those things that, that 
that genetic profile is not suited for. Mm. And is that something? Is this something that you will in your your exercise delivery with clients that you'll kind of account for and kind of try and identify and then play towards that? So if you feel like someone has a greater percentage of type two, would you kind of try and nurture that, or would you? And, and well, and the same for type one. It's all about their goals. Yeah. Now, if I had somebody who said, Jacques, I want to be a bodybuilder, period. Mm. Right? And this is, say this is a 23-year-old 20, person. Mm. They've never really lifted that much in their life, never really an athlete, so they really have no frame of reference about what they're good at. Mm. And they're like, dude, I want to be a bodybuilder. Mm. Then you've, you're sitting there going, okay, I need to, I'm thinking, I need to first get them used to, get their body accustomed to the volume that we're going to do get their neuromuscular system to make some adjustments. And then what I have to do is I have to start to see what starts to shift naturally for them. You see this, like I know I've seen it, where you have one person, you're doing this full body workout for them, and their lower body is just responding like that, right? Their upper body look like, they look like a, you know, Tour de France, Tour de France cyclist. You're like, what's going on there, right? <clears throat> I love Tour de France, no, not not the cyclist, but you know. Um, uh, so the idea is sometimes we have to be observant to see how our clients are responding, and then you know, depending on their goal, make adaptations. Yeah, that's very true. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, th this may sound like a dumb question. Um, it might be, <laughs> but the yeah. um, the it, a lot of people seem to assume that like. Type one muscle fibers is is a synonymous term to slow, uh, um, low threshold motor units, and then high threshold motor units is synonymous with type two muscle fibers. Like in in the sense of if you have high threshold motor units, you're going to be recruiting like bigger, more powerful muscle fibers. Is that actually the case, or is there a crossover? That. Huh. That's a really good question. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um, that is the case. And with this caveat, um, there are, just as there are a spectrum of muscle fiber types, right? We've got type uh, two this, type one that, right? We've got all these different subdivisions. We also have a range of alpha motor neurons and their threshold, right? So to say that there's like a, a cutoff line that you know everything below this threshold is considered slow, right, or low, and everything above this threshold is considered high, we really don't have a, divide, a nice neat dividing line like that, okay? Furthermore, and this is, the, this is the thing that most folks don't understand, is that those alpha motor neurons that are really high threshold, guess what happens with training? Their threshold comes down. Mm. Mm. That's crazy. So thresholds are not these firm, permanent things. Yeah. And but Luke, the thing that the, the thing that I don't feel like I've answered very well, and I don't know that I can do it without drawing pictures and showing people this surface electromyography stuff is just because larger motor units tend to generate more force and as you uh, the idea that um, that 
Uh, let me let me try that again. Uh, you mentioned earlier that people are out there saying that as you uh, as you fatigue, yeah, uh, you're not adding more motor. You're not adding the high threshold threshold motor units because if you were, you would be getting stronger. Okay, um, that's problematic in all kinds of ways. Uh, the 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 problem with that is is the logic. You, first, you have to look at the data and you go yes, those motor units are being added. Then the question becomes, well, then why am I not getting stronger? Mm. And then the question comes back to you, well, when are you measuring your strength? Mm. Right? So again, if I can show people that you do potentiate, you do become stronger. And then there's a point where you actually start to fatigue and get weaker, right? Mm. That's a really big deal. That's mm. the thing. Yes, you actually do get stronger. Typically, we work past that point. Mm. We're trying to go into fatigue and into failure. Mm. That's our mission when we go to the gym. Except I have, I have, um, yeah, a handful of clients uh, that have said to me, Jock, when I leave here, I want to feel stronger. Mm. I, I don't want to feel like I got the crap kicked out of me. I don't care if I'm not like, you know, really big and jacked. I don't care about that. I just, I want to feel like, I've done something good for my body. I definitely would like to feel stronger and I want to go out of here feeling energized. Mm. And for those individuals, I will design an exercise, a workout where we are simply potentiating the muscles and they walk out not only feeling stronger, but we can measure that they are measurably stronger. Mm. Right? Yeah. I mean, that's something where it, it, and it's slightly different, but it's in a sense the same. Like we'll, we'll get, Cal and I will have individuals where we'll, be monitoring certain biomarkers and we'll go, okay, your nervous system's pretty compromised at this point. Let's, you know, let's have a week where we're, we're deloading or, or whatever, or reloading. And the aim there will be what I'll usually tell people. I'll say, I want you to leave the gym in every session this week, feeling stronger than when you went in. And yep. Yeah. And that's yep. doing it. Yep. And, and what's really cool is we will talk about some strategies about how you can do that consistently. Like if that client wants to do that. And yeah. then here's, here's the other cool thing though. Think about this. Mm. Let's say you get this person who's coming in the gym and they go, Hey, look, my doctor said I got to lose weight. Mm. I mean, I just got to do it. And you know, I kind of want to do it too, but I don't know that I like exercising because really the last time I did it, I was your age and I was big and I worked my tail off and it was an all consuming thing. And I just, I don't have time for that anymore. I can't, I can't afford to leave here feeling like, you know, like I need to take a nap. Mm. You go, okay, great. So the first thing you can do is you design workouts where you're potentiating them. They leave feeling energized. Mm. And then when they start feeling like that, they might say, Hey, look, you know what? I feel so good. I want to push this a little bit. Mm. Actually, I'd like to, I'd like to see a little, you know, a little less around the middle a little stronger, you go, okay, great. So maybe one workout out of the three that you do with them a week, you go past potentiation into fatigue, maybe not failure, right? Into fatigue, so you can get some little bit, maybe a little bit of hypertrophy, some strength gains, and then eventually you actually push them past, past fatigue and into failure. Mm. Once you do that just once a week, their bodies start to recover from that. Then you can do it twice a week, their bodies start to recover from that. You can even add a third day. Mm. So it's a way of progressing to the intensity that, that we love and helping people, you know, enjoy every stage along the way. 
That's amazing. No, I never thought about it like that, but that's such a, such a good way of doing it. Yeah. Mm. So I suppose that is, is a nice little um, cover of how MotoUnit works. So, I mean, what, let's dip into now the, the differences between eccentric and concentric and isometric. Right. Muscle contraction, like what? What's because like this is another kind of fits in nicely with what we're talking about because there's a lot of misunderstanding on this topic. Um, but the, the you know, let me. I'll just hit you with a question. Um, we are stronger on eccentric uh, muscle contractions than we are on concentric contractions. True or false? Good question. Um, Let, 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 I'm going to say false. It's it, it's false. Okay. Here's why it's here's why it's false. <clears throat> um, now, and, and everybody listening to this is freaking out right now. They're going, guy. He doesn't know. I can prove it. Tell him to come to my gym. I will show his ass. It is that is so wrong. Right. <laughs> we've all had the experience, right? We had the experience of going. I'm doing my dumbbell curl. I can barely get that to the, I can barely squeeze to the top, but I could do easily 15 pounds going the other way. Right. Mm. So how can that, how can that not be proof that we are stronger on the eccentric side? Mm. Here's the thing. And I've gone through some really detailed convoluted, uh, um, intricate explanations of this mm. but the best one that I've ever heard mm. heard it the other day Luke, and I think you've heard this one too Callum this, this guy Purvis yeah Purvis said look you always need more force to win a tug of war than to lose one mm. okay? now here's what I'm waiting and this is the gene for this so think about this your bicep is in a tug of war right with that dumbbell mm. so in order for it to win meaning move your hand up towards your shoulder right or moving your yeah going into elbow flexion in order for it to do that it has to be winning the tug of war mm. in order to lower it back down it is losing the tug of war mm. right so if you're losing the tug of war of course you don't need as much energy of mm. course you don't need as much neurological stimulation mm. Of course you are stronger. You don't have to do as much. Mm. So all that other stuff, all the details of the half sarcomere and the full sarcomere and the Titan and the calcium and all that, it's all great. It's all awesome. It's all relevant. But the first thing you got to understand is that that's, that's the baseline. And then everything else falls into place. Mm. It's crazy. But it I, mean, that's, I think the coolest thing, the coolest thing. And then the most, in a way, annoying thing is, is yeah. the amount of research that then almost becomes irrelevant because people have, have gone, oh yeah, we've compared concentric muscle contraction and eccentric muscle contraction and they haven't accounted for that. They've used the same weight. You're like, well, uh, those two are completely incomparable because the challenge isn't the same. Not the same. Yeah. Not the same. So, so what's, but, but, here, but, but Luke, here's the thing that's so exciting about this though. 
and Callum. Sorry, Callum. I, I didn't mean to. I'm not forgetting about you, man. I'm just soaking it up. <laughs> <laughs> so here's the thing. You've got a client who says, listen, gosh darn it. At the end of the day, I'm trying to lead out. I'm trying to lose weight. I'm trying to make sure that I'm as lean as I can for this competition coming up. So that means that this person wants to use pretty, they want to use a lot of energy, right? So if to win a tug of war, that means I have to come up with more force. That means that I need more neurological energy. I actually need more ATP, right? I'm going to need more oxygen if I'm doing this under some sort of aerobic circumstance. Yeah. Mm. So I might spend a little bit more time on a concentric phase of a contraction, right? Mm. Than I would on an eccentric phase of the contraction. Cause on the eccentric phase, it's significantly easier. Yeah. Right. So for, for um, so second to second, you would say, Hey, look, I'm going to spend more time doing my concentric thing. Cause I know I'm going to be using a lot more energy there than I'm going to be doing on my eccentric. Right. So this kind of goes back to something that we talked about last year at FNS in, in London that, yeah, I'm going to spend a little bit more time on that content or if those are my goals. And that doesn't have to be that way all the time. It can be like, you know, do that for three weeks where you go, okay, we're going to do a eight second, you know, concentric for your bicep curl. And then on the eccentric, we're going to go down in three seconds. And what we're going to do is since we're using um, a cable, when your arm gets all the way down next to your side, the weight stack will be closed. So it's not a big deal. We're not worried about inertia, right? We just let it go down. The weight stack catches it. Nothing gets hurt. Three seconds down. One, two, three. Boom. Up on eight. Oh, man. Talk about a crazy burn. Yeah. You'll be pumped for days. You won't be able to fit your shirt. I'm glad you mentioned inertia there because that, that kind of leads me on to the you know what that's something that gets where it's, it's always present in the gym and no one ever accounts for it but it's one of the things where it seems if someone wants to maximize the amount of work their muscles are doing they want to make they want to make sure they can control for inertial forces and or inertial effects i suppose because inertia isn't technically a force um but the i mean what what are the the implications that's that's going to have on on like total work that a muscle is going to produce if we're you know we're doing a dumbbell curl with a one second uh, concentric and eccentric like th that those inertial forces are going to or inertial effects are going to reduce the amount of work that we're having to do right well okay so or, or would you argue that the, the speed that you generate in order to produce those inertial effects kind of counters that and you're still producing a similar amount of work. Okay. So here, here's the thing that's, that's throwing me a little bit. When I think of word work, yeah. I'm thinking of the physics term, right? Yeah. That's kind of what I'm referring to in the sense of the talk we're producing internally. Okay. Well, here's the thing. The work is going to be the same, right? Yeah. You're moving from here to here, right? So the work is the same. Yeah. The thing that becomes different would be the power because how often are you doing that, that work, right? Okay. So then you say to yourself, okay, so what am I trying to do on the inside? When I do, when I do a really fast concentric, right? Using, let's say, let's keep it uh, using a dumbbell, 
uh, for, for a bicep curl. Mm. At those first, say, five degrees of motion or so, mm. if, I, if I pull hard enough, I can get that dumbbell moving fast enough that it might carry itself from the, let's say, uh, 45 degrees of elbow flexion all the way up to as far as I can go, right? Then I'm almost stopping it at the other end. Mm. So that means that I came up with a lot of force or a lot of torque, as you said, at the very beginning, and then I didn't need that much mm. until I got to the very top when I want to slow it back down coming the other way, okay? So, yeah, you might say that you might, you might need an in, instantaneously, you need more torque when you're trying to move it fast at the very beginning, but I can also load you up without using inertia, right? And have you generate the same amount of torque right there and then have it back off a little bit as you go through the range of motion so that you don't get lots of torque, no torque, mm. torque, right? Yeah. So that inertial effect doesn't affect the work that's done, mm. but it affects the amount of torque when you need to generate torque. Yeah. Yeah. Right, you need a lot of it at the beginning, not so much of it as you're floating through the middle, and then you got to catch it again up at the top, which might require your elbow extensors to help stop that weight. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on what you're what you're going for. Here's another thing to think about, Luke. So let's say that I've done uh, wh which range of the motion of a of a muscle fatigues first, lengthened or shortened? Shortened. All right, awesome. So I've just done all kinds of shortening bicep work, right, in a shortened position. And now all I got left, man, all I got left is the lengthened end. Mm -hmm. So that might be a nice place to really, you know, work with that inertia, the, the, the influence of inertia, because that's where I'm going to have to come up with the most amount of torque, right? Right down there where it's lengthened. And then as I shorten that muscle some more, I don't have to come up with as much torque because I got really got it moving. So here I'm using, I'm taking advantage of that reality. Yeah. Right? That's something that we, we kind of preach because there's certain movements out there that, you know, the, the, the resistance profile of, of the movement is pretty shoddy compared to what the, you know, the strength profile of the muscles involved. I mean, a good example here would be something like a barbell row. And, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if you could potentially use inertial effects to your, advantage if, if you were able to generate that inertia well to actually match those you know match the resistance profile the strength profile right that's right so what happens is as you start to fatigue certain lengths of the tissue the inertial effect allows you to uh the the influence of inertia allows you to train the length of the tissue that's left over yeah. so in the case of, of the standing bicep curl we usually say well geez that's what's you know you can whip through that bottom section. Well, if that's all you got left because you fatigued up here so much, all you got left is down there. That's a win. Mm. That can be awesome exercise because you got to deal with it going up and you got to deal with it in that, in that last third coming down. Mm. So, so a good example then of an exercise where the profile isn't great, but you'd want to control for inertial forces, but and by potentially having like a slow, slow rate of or velocity of contraction, rate of movement, whatever you want to call it, um, would be something like a dumbbell press. Because I, I would say, like, as you're lowering that weight, if you were to lower that weight fast, the position that you're putting your shoulder joint in, the effect that inertia could have on massively increasing joint forces at the bottom of that would be crazy. Whereas if you were, yeah, you know, some people would say, oh, I'm going to lower the weight slowly because I'm stronger on the eccentric, when we know that it actually the 
the the argument for doing it in that case would probably be to control for inertial effects and joint forces. Would you would you agree? Uh, yes, and I would also say you could set up a um, you could. <laughs> what if you had a if you had a <clears throat> bench set up at forty five degree angle? Yeah. Cable column on each side, right? So now when you're out in that horizontally abducted position, the cable is uh, pulling straight out to the side. So if you wanted to, you could go fast down there because it's just going to close at the bottom where you're vulnerable. The weight stack is going to close. It's unloaded, right? Mm -hmm. That way you could do your slow, concentric, and then go down fast. Mm -hmm. No problem, Mm -hmm. right? Not bad. Not bad. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then and, and like I mean, like jumping back to the dumbbell scenario, like looking yep. at the concentric part of that movement, you would argue that the, the profile of that movement, you know, given the the torque demand at the bottom versus the top, if we were to let inertial forces have quite or inertial effects have quite a large degree of of influence, there would be yes. very little challenge at the top, wouldn't there? At the top, it would be very little challenge, right? If anything, when you you know, if you give it a good sho- shove at the bottom, once you get to the top, they almost want to smack together, right? Yeah, which everyone will be able to relate to. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So the the dealing dealing with inertia with a dumbbell press, um, that becomes really important. I think of it like um, you know, if you're in a parking garage, you know, you're parking your car. And, uh, you know, let's say that you guys are out and you're, you know, you're in, you know, uh, Callum's Lamborghini, right? And you guys are, you know, he's back in the Lamborghini in, right? And you can see there's a wall back there. You don't like gun it and like slam on the brakes and hope that you just tap the wall. You back that in nice and slowly, 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 and you stop. The same thing with, you know, you know, 40 kilo dumbbell, right? You shouldn't be slamming down to this position. It should be, right? Mm. Make managing the control of inertia absolutely yeah so on on this topic i either i've just brought up a paper actually because i was reading it earlier because mm-hmm. we'd spoken about it before that they've uh, there's studies where they've compared eccentric and concentric contractions using isokinetic um yes. machines yes um, yes and uh and before, I didn't have a way of describing that. Well, I was looking at this paper where they've con- compared um, eccentric and concentric muscle contractions, but using isokinetic machines. Um, and, and, and this is where I think we've spoken about it before, but, and they've actually shown that we are still marginally stronger on an eccentric contraction under these conditions, which is where you would actually be able to compare because the challenge would be similar. Right. But, the the the, diff, the difficulty is is like you know they're using a computer assisted dynamometer which is going to be pretty damn hard to replicate in a gym scenario. Um, well, but but Luke, you don't have to. I mean, th- this this is the problem, right? This is the thing. This is the opportunity that you and I get to see through. They are completely missing. And and and, and trust me, dude, I didn't understand this the last time we talked about this, mm. right? Like I was still trying to wrap my head around this this the neuroscience behind it not matching up with what this paper said but here's the problem and this is the genius of what what tom uh uh has said and that is if you think of it 
it's not so much that 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 we're stronger it's just that we're losing the tug of war mm. so yes we'll be able to manage that a little bit more it'll it will it will look like we are managing more it's just because we don't have to hold on to as much mm. okay yeah. so it's not that the paper is wrong it's the perspective is all backwards right so on the outside i could i would absolutely say yeah look um Jacques, I want you to, you're responsible for this 40 kilo load. And like, okay, great. Give me to me on an eccentric contraction every single time. Mm. That is going to be easier for me to manage than pulling it toward me. Mm. Right? Absolutely. That, that's absolutely true. But when we look on the inside, when we really get an idea of what's happening, yes, the reality might be that I can lower 80 pounds or, or 80, uh, I'm sorry, 40 kilos uh, that I couldn't lift. That's not a, 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 that's not because of a weakness. It's just because the force requirements are different. Mm. Mm. The force requirements are different. Yeah. I think so, that, yeah. So that's why it's not true to say that you're stronger than it's like, well, no, the force requirements are different. Yeah. I thought that there was an interesting thing in this paper, um, where they were talking about, um, they basically looked at all these results and they found that, Eccentric training led to a pretty significant increase in eccentric peak torque. So, yeah, but but there was very little improvement in in concentric muscular contraction performance. But yes. then, in the, group, in the group that did concentric training only, they found that there was an improvement in both concentric performance and eccentric performance. And I was thinking, well, I was wondering what like what you thought the implications were here, like what what would be the mechanisms, but my thought would be that it was something along the lines of concentric work requires more ATP and more neuromuscular signaling because there's more of a requirement for the antagonistic musculature to actually control the movement. Yes. Yeah. You got it. You got it. it all, this, all, all that paper shows is, hey, yeah, if you don't train it, you're not going to have it. <laughs> right? You don't, you don't get to get stronger concentrically when you don't train it. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, yeah, man. It's um, but but Luke and Callum, I want you guys. I want to encourage you guys to keep thinking about this whole um, uh, tug of war thing because it is a real it like it is a real it's it's a really challenging concept to 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 adopt. Mm. It may not change what you do in terms of concentric and eccentric contractions. Mm but it should change when you decide to use them mm. to change um, what goals you use them for. Um, yeah. So, so, so here's a question then, like, let's say we, we, we program someone to do a, a leg extension or something. Yeah, we, uh, we'll say bicep curl because we've used that example actually. And they do a bicep curl with like a 20 pound dumbbell and they, but the, the, and we know that the challenge isn't the same on the concentric and the eccentric, but we said, I want you to move relatively fast-ish. So let's say that I wanted you to lift it for three seconds on the concentric, but then I want you to lower it for six seconds. The, the, would that be a method of kind of equating the challenges or, or is that still I, I, I think that would be measure it, right? 
Yeah, exactly. You, that would be highly individual, right? Yeah. In terms of how much, how slow would the eccentric have to be in order to match the energy used on the concentric, right? Yeah. But but again, Luke, like that's that's smart training. That is going if I if I am going to do this eccentric and I do want to get a lot of energy out of it, then I might want to make it twice as long as the concentric. Yeah. Right. But then, but here's the thing you got to remember that this too, though, is that when I do that eccentric for that amount of time, especially if I'm loading the length and third of that tissue, I run into higher likelihood of creating some tissue damage, which not necessarily a bad thing, but it's definitely going to make this person recover for a longer period of time. Mm. Right? So if my goal right at first is to get this person in and feeling good and not feeling sore, then I might spend, again, I'm going to spend the time on the concentric, less time on the eccentric, less of that you know, connective tissue damage kind of thing. Right. But if I've got somebody who's in training, they're four months out from competing I might be seriously after some of that eccentric damage while they have a time to recover. We can see how their bodies adapt, right? Cause we're far, far enough out from competition to do stuff like that. Mm. They're still eating a lot as opposed to starting to like, you know, uh, pull back or restrict calorie calories. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. I think that's, um, that's a good thing you mentioned there as well. Cause that's, one of the components when we, I mean, you, you did this unbelievable video, which I still refer to, um, mm. on, on the, you know, what happens in that length tension relationship with respect yeah. to the muscle tissue. And that's yeah. one of the things where if we're looking at, um, you know, someone wants to understand what's going on on, on these portions of muscular contraction, it's worth probably, you know, giving them a bit of an idea of the fact that, the passive tissue is going to not only play a role in providing tension on that eccentric or as the muscles lengthening, but also um, it's going to be put under quite a lot of strain, right? Yes. So <clears throat> one of the things that um, I, I actually, I don't think we'll have time to go over this uh, in class, but um, your connective tissue and contractile tissue have both a parallel relationship and also a series relationship, right? So when you have things that are related to each other in series, that means that any tension that's placed on the connective tissue is also placed on the contractile tissue, right? So when you have the passive stretches, everything is getting tension placed on it. Mm. When you have these active contractions, everything is getting tension placed on it okay um so that's something that we can't um we can't ignore we can't get around it um and it also is one of the reasons why um there are some so there are some you know people out there that think that they're activating you know one division of your rectus abdominis muscle it's like yeah good luck with that it's not happening because you wouldn't move your ribcage towards your pelvis because if it was pulling and another one wasn't, you would just have this thing where, you know, the tissue is lengthening like that. Mm. And that's not what's happening. So mm. it doesn't make sense, much sense. Mm. Um, but yeah, the long and short of that is, is forces get transmitted um, all the way through the tissue from one end to the other end. Mm.
So that's that's something that people need to account for, especially. And it, I mean, it comes back to that inertial effects. Um, you know, when, yeah. we, when we start lowering weights with with a lack of control and yeah. uh, putting joints in a particular position where they're quite vulnerable. Yeah. And you know, understanding that your passive tissue is taking quite a big brunt of with that is um is pretty important, especially when you're considering longevity and everything like yeah. that in the gym, which is what we want, people. What we want. Yes. Now, now, Luke. One other thing, because I know this is in your wheelhouse, and you too, Callum, is is what I hope people learn when they come to your workshops, right? I hope they get that <clears throat> what you guys do so well is you say, "Hey, look, if I know that this person doesn't have good control with their, let's say, their knee is uh, with their elbow fully extended, right? They don't have good control right there. That they're paying attention." And they understand that they can make that the lightest part of the range of motion. All they have to do is design the exercise appropriately. Similarly with the shoulder. If somebody has really poor control at horizontal abduction, right? They don't know how to stop at the right point. You can design an exercise where the forces go to zero right there. So if, they, if they're not good at controlling that, eh, no big deal. We can teach them how to do that. Not only that, but we can slowly increase the amount of force in that position as they learn how to do it. And that's the stuff that they're getting from you guys when, you, when, when they're coming to your biomechanics workshops is they're designing these resistance profiles to match up with the way the nervous system can control that tissue. Mm. You're, you're plugging the wrong seminar here, Jacques. appreciate the compliment but i mean like i think we'll we'll see similar similar scenarios in in your workshop as well i imagine um absolutely and i mean jock for those that don't know as well he's he's a you've done rts mastery so for those that following the RTS side of things as well, that this is kind of the stuff you, you end up exploring. Very, very valuable. Yes. And, that, and that, as you're speaking of which, for those that don't know, that the guy that was mentioned earlier, Tom Purvis, is indeed the founder of RTS. Yes. And um, you know, a, bit of a bit of a wizard. A bit of a wizard. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah. But no, I think that's, um, I think that, that will probably, I think we'll wrap it up there because that was a pretty in-depth conversation. I think that would be more than enough. I think that was about an hour and 20-ish, hour and 10, hour and 15. Yeah. So that's, um, yeah, I mean, that was epic. So thank you very much, Shark, for blessing Absolutely. us with time again and knowledge. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Yeah, happy to do it whenever you guys want. That was awesome. Yeah, that was wicked. And, um, so other than this um, seminar in London, which is next week, I think we'll be dropping this tomorrow so that we can say that the seminar is going to be next weekend. That's right. So other than that, what, what, what's on the agenda for you at the moment? Um, putting together um, uh, an online series uh, where people will be able to, you know, sit comfort of your own home. Um, there will be some really cool videos that will be part of it. Um, there's something called um, uh, these um, memory retention strategies um, that will help you to remember this stuff and actually use it. Um, and it measurably, we've actually consulted with some cognitive neuroscientists to figure out how do people learn best? How do we get these trainers not only to hear this stuff and think it's cool, but to actually use it and make a difference in the world? So um, that'll probably be rolling out somewhere uh, mid-January, be my guess. It'll be ready to roll and 
people can sign up and you know i'm in yeah come on in i'm in awesome awesome no that's that's cool and i think that but that's one of the things that i mean we, we spoke about this with last time we spoke of the the amount of knowledge that people can absorb in a way but then you know they, they or they the amount of knowledge people can present themselves with but they don't actually absorb because they haven't got the you know yeah. the pairing methods of, of reinforcing that um, yeah so that is a very very cool tool mm. yeah mm. anyway thank you again jacques it's been an absolute pleasure and um we will a hundred percent be following this up with a part three at some point awesome awesome thank you yeah and um We'll see you uh, see you in a couple of weeks. Well, we yeah. Can. yeah, that's right, that's right. See you soon. Yeah, thank you, man. All right, guys. Yeah, I got to run. I'll talk to you soon.